Anyway, why don't we pray and we'll get into the confession. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to reflect on important matters, the summary of doctrine that we have here in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And we pray, Lord, you'll help us as we reflect on it, to be nourished in our reflections, particularly as we connect uh, the confession to Scripture and to our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're kind of in, we have the end in sight. It's going to take us a while still to get to the end of the confession, but I wanted to see, uh, kind of do a straw poll here quick in terms of what, uh, what could be next. Um, one thought would be to go to the Shorter Catechism. I'll work through the Shorter Catechism during this time, which would be great. Another thought was maybe going to another Reformed Confession. I was thinking maybe the Heidelberg. We could go through that. Any, any thoughts? Um, or I could just go back to chapter one and just do it all over again. <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, going to the Heidelberg would be better because that's much harder for a, a typical layperson to get through. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, the Shorter Chasm, since it was created for children in the first place, it's easier to do on your own. Right, right. Yeah, I, I kind of favor that too. Yeah, yeah Dan. Like one of the creeds, like the Nicene or the... Yeah, we could do that too. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the creeds would be uh, quicker. It might be like a month long to get through and then maybe go on to the Heidelberg. That's a great idea. Other thoughts? Anyway, it, it's, we've got plenty of time. It's, it's you know, it's taken me this long to get through, the ch through chapter 25. It's like, you know, two and a half years. <laughs> might take another six months to get through the end of it. But anyway, here we are in chapter 25, and we're looking at uh, the fourth and fifth paragraphs. And uh, looks like Tom's got the, I hope in any way, got the bulletin. No. No. <laughs> I might be just, what's that? Oh, okay, great. Okay. Uh, I was thinking I might just have to, you know, tell you what we're doing from the pulpit. Um, so we're in chapter 25. And we're going to look at the last two paragraphs, uh, four and five, really important ones, and six, really important ones, particularly as it relates to how do we relate uh, you know, to believers and other traditions? How do we think about that? Uh, how do we even think about ourselves? You know, do we have it all right? Are we like, you know, got it all together and everybody else has not got it together? You know, so these are important uh, statements on that. So, uh, number four, this Catholic Church, remember we are talking about the universal church, uh, both in, in, in the invisible and visible senses. Vis, invisible meaning the church as, as it is known to God, and then visible, uh, not limited to one part of the world or one ethnic group, but everywhere. So this Catholic Church has been sometimes more, sometimes less visible. So in other words, there's kind of a waxing and waning. Sometimes, uh, you know, things aren't going all that great and the church contracts in size and other times it grows in size. And particular churches, which are members thereof, that would be us, our particular church, are more or less pure. Wow, so there's a, an admission here that we might not have it all together all the time. According to this, uh, according as the doctrine of the gospel is taught and embraced, ordinances administered and public worship performed more or less purely 
in them. So again, this kind of narrows in on a very reformed understanding of what it means to have pure teaching, pure practice, and so forth. Uh, the gospel taught, embraced, ordinances administered, and public worship performed, you know, as well as they can be performed. Any thoughts on, on that, those particular statements? I think it's lucky that we have a master who can teach you. Well, thank you, Molly. Well, hopefully it's more than luck. <laughs> anyway, other thoughts? Now, what, what, what I think is really valuable uh, in sort of exploring here is, this, is just the sense that we, as our own church, as we're striving to, to get it right, uh, are always working at it. It's not as though we can just say, woo, all done. We've got, it. We've got it all together. We've arrived. Because there's some dimension that still needs to be further developed. So let's say that we have a really sound, say, uh, understanding of the gospel and how the, go the gospel is to be uh, preached and the sacraments administered. Well, there's still a lot of work to do in terms of our own lives, right? There's still a lot of work to do in terms of our own fellowship and right, the communion of saints. You know, there's always stuff to be done to, to uh, bring our lives into, the con into conformity and in the, in the worship in the church into, con into conformity. So it's, it's, it's a it's a never-ending process. It's sort of like doing your laundry. It's like you say, well, did it once. <laughs> what do we need to do it again for? Well, you, you, you know, things get dirty. You have to keep at it. There are things that are happening. We're in a world where, you know, people are, you know, we're hearing all sorts of things. We're wondering what to think about those things. Uh, you know, we're trying to understand what it means to be a Christian as, as we respond to those things. So there are lots of things that can, can, can imply just ongoing challenge uh, in this respect. So, you know, you've uh, semper uh, reformanda, you know, the idea that always reforming. Uh, I think that's getting at that. There's always something that needs to be done There's in my life or in the church, both. Uh, and then, of course, doctrine. You know, there are points in time where doctrine uh, is uh, polluted, something happens or what have you and you having to address that particular matter. All right, uh, on to the next paragraph. Uh, and I think this is important to think about because this helps us as we think about how do we relate to believers in other traditions. So the purest churches under heaven are subject both to mixture and error, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. So if I think about my own experience, um, I was converted in a church that is a, a Christian church. At the same time, I've come to a place where I think that some of the doctrines that that church teaches are less than sound. Okay? So it doesn't mean I you know, cut off all my friendships with those people, <laughs> you know, have nothing to do with them. Uh, it also doesn't mean we don't talk about it either. I mean, it doesn't mean like we just sort of like, we're all just gonna keep quiet about our disagreements, you know, that kind of thing. There's, there's room for this. So now when you think about that, is there any way that maybe you've ever thought about how do you kind of like 
categorize it all? You know, how, you know, how, do we, how do we think about it? I don't think there's any formal thing I've ever come across, but any, any thoughts on that? Think when about I what specifically is. Just a okay, mom. Yep. Okay. Okay. When I first walked through this into this church, I walked a mile from because I used to live on 151st Street. And then Jared really he was a minister then, said I just I just hadn't found a church after we moved up here. We moved up here in nineteen eighty nine. Well, we're glad you found us. Yeah. 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 Great. Someone over here. Just more clarification. Think about specifically what. Okay. Well, let's think about just in terms of you know. Okay. Uh, I've got some Baptist friends. I have some Pentecostal friends. I have some Wesleyan friends. I have some Roman Catholic friends. I have some Eastern Orthodox friends. You know, at what point do we say, okay, we've got, some, you know, kind of growing disagreements. <laughs> the further out you go, I mean, the, the disagreements become more significant. When do you cross the line and you're, not, and you're not dealing with a Christian any longer? Like Mormons. I mean, I, you know, if we were talking about Mormons or we're talking about Unitarians or we're talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, what, what point do you cross the line? You say, okay, we're outside the faith. Yeah. Um. My approach is always then to base it off of the verse in Romans, which if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, then you shall be saved. So anybody who professes that and treats as a Christian, off of that, obviously, um, if you're living in sin, well, then I can talk to you as a Christian because you're professing that. Um, and then there's the layers of theological things where the Bible clearly teaches certain things. Not all churches follow those. So, yeah, I would say that I approach anyone who says that as a Christian, but then off of that, I guess in terms of like more faithful Christians than not, like the further you are away from the theology of the Bible, the more in danger that your faith is not actually real. Yeah, I think that's a good point. So there's, I think one of the things you're getting at here, you know, just as I, I'm hearing you, t tell me if I'm not on track, is there's kind of the, the practice of personal faith and the, then there's the, the sort of the objective content of their confession. Yeah. So, um, so for example, my mother-in-law, I love her. She's a believer. Um, there's some theological things that she believes that are just nuts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what I'm getting at, uh, and um, then you know we think about institutions. Uh, let's say, for example, we're talking about the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, obviously, there are things we as uh, Reformed believers strongly disagree with concerning certain doctrinal positions that the Roman Catholic Church holds. Does that mean it's impossible for a person to know Christ in the Roman Catholic Church? And at a personal level, this is the challenge. I know many practicing Roman Catholics who have a very, I, I, I'm, I'm confident, have a very sound relationship with Christ. So what do you do with that? You know? Um, on the other hand, you know, you've got situations like, let's say we're talking about Mormons. Um, I mean, you're getting into some 
genuine heresy here. <laughs> you know, multiple gods, uh, you know, an embodied heavenly father as opposed to a transcendent heavenly father. You know, when they talk about the heavens and, and you know, our father in heaven, they literally mean maybe on some planet, <laughs> you know, in another solar system. You know, that's what we're talking about. Uh, so at that point, you're like, whoa, you know, you use some of the language we use, but there's, you're meaning some different stuff. You know, you know what I'm getting at? Yeah, Jonathan. They have different standards for, um, they have different standards for faith as well. Um, it's very subjective. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, um, you know, the Romans or, or First John talking about testing the spirits, um, things like that. They don't have a biblical objective standard. It's, you know, it's, it's, all, it's all based off of a personal subjective interpretation of yeah, yeah. Yeah. In the bosom, they talk right. about it. yeah. Now, one of the things that's really sort of worth considering or thinking about and reflecting on is America seems to be like a heresy-generating uh, culture. We just have a way of cranking them out. <laughs> you know, you think about all the different kinds of things, particularly in the 19th century, some really wild stuff. Uh, and many of us look back at the 19th century as like the good old days. Oh, if we could just go back, you know, and enjoy the Second Great Awakening and all that kind of stuff. And, but at the same time, you've got, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, you've got Mormonism, you've got uh, Transcendentalism, you've got uh, Unitarianism, you know, you've got a lot of stuff, Christian science, all kind of, kind of churning out in like remarkable ways during that period of time. And I think and the reason I bring that up is, is the 19th century was sort of the heyday of this sort of thing, of this kind of subjectivism. Um, yeah, Dan. Has there any, been any study on why, like the 1830s and 40s, all these just all of this came out and all of it just stuck? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, every everything from Adventism to we know all these other things I've mentioned. Um, yeah, I, I think it was a real time of turmoil uh, culturally. We have people from all over the world coming to the United States. That's one thing, but it was also a uh, you know. Uh, a land of possibilities, the land of zero. You know, I've actually heard historians talk about the Ameri American experience as being sort of everybody saying, okay, we're going to start fresh, go to zero. So, you know, like the Shakers or something like that. You know, we're going we're to, um, you know, start from scratch and, and see how it goes. <laughs> that kind of thing. And, yeah. Uh, uh, so I don't I don't get the sense from this chapter um, that that those who you know who, who wrote this necessarily had like a optimistic you know like the trajectory of 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 the gospel and the church throughout throughout the world. But maybe I'm missing something else in the in the elsewhere in the confession. But do you do you am I, am I wrong there? Or do you have a do you have an opinion? Because um, I've seen, it, it seems like when, when God gives commands and, and promises, like the Great Commission, um, that uh, that there is, um, you know, there, there is, you, you see forward progress through the life of the church, like like God did with, with Abraham um, in giving him the, the promise of to make him father of many nations and to give him the land. And there's a very real eschatological, you know, meaning behind that. That, that he didn't see fulfilled in his life, 
time, um, um, but, but by faith he, you know, he, he acted upon. And you see that then through, throughout the generations unfolding uh, where, where God makes that promise come true more and more. Um, you know, so I guess my question, do you, do you think that we are bound to have the church more and more sanctified, um, closer and closer to you know, reforming more and more um, to, to true doctrine as well as growth throughout the... Well, I think, I think the thing to keep in mind is that this was a very uh, sort, of, uh, sort of focused... Um, Polemic. What's that? Polemic. Yeah, yeah. It's, they're talking about, uh, you know, the crown, <laughs> the, you know, the par you know, they're talking, they're addressing parliament, they're talking about their own nation, and so they're, they're concerned with reforming the church in that land. So they're, I think, completely caught up in that and less sort of oriented toward the world and sort of the, you know, the end of the, you know, the end. Um, now, I agree with you that, that you know, uh, that's something that I wish that they had done more uh, with, <laughs> but that's that's why I think that it's focused in this way. Um, but it, you know, even even then, you know, they've got uh, a measure of diversity in the kingdom, you know, in England, that in England and Wales and Scotland, uh, that was really a challenge for them. You know, so even within, you know, the the you know this Westminster, uh, you know you know, this whole project of creating the confession. You've got Anglican, you know, you've got, you know, Episcopal, Episcopalians, I mean, in terms of, you know, their, their interest in staying, you know, true to the sort of rule of bishops. And then you've got Congregationalists, um, uh, you've got Presbyterians. So you've got these, this mix, and, and that's challenging enough <laughs> to try, try to come to a consensus uh, without getting into some of that stuff. Yeah, Jiho. Um, we talk about us and them, but this is saying that in this organization, in this room, there's divisions or there's there's mixtures. Yeah. Um, so it's not just a question of like how do we like put Mormons outside the yeah. the sphere, but like how do we like do that calculation inside this room? Sure. Yeah, it's a both and. I'm completely with you. It's a both and. I do think they do have in mind, although the Mormons didn't exist at that time. <laughs> they did have the, that that question in mind too. So. Um, so they're trying to think about, and in fact, we're going to get into the very next chapter, Communion of Saints, which gets more into you know our fellowship within uh, the church. But uh, the, there's there's a reality in both that you know we're dealing with this in both places. You know how do we how do we deal with people who are uh, not of our confession, uh, but at the same time, how do we but it, and, and acknowledge that they're Christians. Then there is like, what's the bridge too far? But then when you get in the church, uh, this other question is just how do we deal with the impurity, you know, in, the, in the, our, our personal lives and the congregation, these kinds of things. 
Okay, well, now here, it does bring up here this matter explicitly, when has a church gone so far? It's gone. Are you talking about its doctrine or its rules? Whatever. It just says here. Let me read it again. Some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. So he says, you know, let me get the whole statement. The purest churches under heaven are subject to both a mix, to mixture and error. Us. I'm sorry? Us. Us, sure, right? Our church. Yeah. So, uh, and some have so degenerated as to become no churches of Christ, but synagogues of Satan. Them. Yep. So how do, we, how do we say that church has gone too far? I'd like to make a suggestion here at this church. Um, the word is used over and again in this chapter, which is interesting, Catholic. Yeah. So what they're saying is that they're appealing to like places in Romans where it says, they're cut off, or you could be cut off. Mm -hmm. So there is, I think in the minds of these writers, a doctrinal application that says either us or them. Mm -hmm. And them is when, they're, when you're denying the essentials of our historic Christian, it is an, right. an historical doctrine. And I like, to, I like to appeal to myself the Apostles' Creed. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good, that's a very good measure. Uh, just a couple hundred years later, in Reformed churches in New England, this was a huge thing, the Unitarian controversy. So Unitarianism swept through New England. And there were, I, in fact, I remember there was a church in Boston called uh, Second Church of Dorchester, and I was uh, involved with uh, kind of trying to revive it. And it was an enormous facility, you know, colonial church building, um, could seat probably seven, eight hundred people. Uh, and uh, the square that it was located in was named for the founding pastor, Codman. It was Codman Square. Uh, but there was a Unitarian uprising in the church, and they actually barred him from his own pulpit. And it's kind of legendary that when he, he actually, they actually hired thugs <laughs> to surround the pulpit to keep him from going into it. And he went up to the front pew and just stood on it and preached. <laughs> but that's, that's you know, something that happened uh, in a reformed setting. I mean, these, you know, just, you know, down the road, uh, Jonathan Edwards' world, you know, this. So when Edwards was dealing with his own controversies, you know, this was sort of in the distance. He could see it coming, this kind of stuff. So uh, now Unitarians, are they Christians? If you use your definition, and I think it's a good one, the answer is no. They deny the divinity of Christ. How about the uh, PCUSA then, or in the uh, 1900s, early 1900s? Yeah, well, I think when we're, when we're dealing with, when it comes to any denomination, this is a warning to, to you know, the, we could be this, you know, 100 years, 200 years down the road. We could have that same thing. And so that's why you always have to be vigilant.
Yeah, I used to have a joke back when I was in Cam uh, back in uh, Manchester because the Unitarians were literally literally right down the street, and you know you'd have you'd have people come and they'd look for certain kinds of things in a church, and I say you've got the wrong place. The, the Unitarians are over there. <laughs> if you want that, they're they'll be they're happy to do it. They'll bless anything. You know. It makes me think of. Um the, the, the new generation of Israelites after, after the 40 years of wandering uh, gets circumcised and God speaks to them uh, renewing the covenant and he, he says you know this is a covenant I'm, I'm not make, I did not make with your fathers but with you even though it's like almost the exact same words that, that their fathers had heard each generation um, that must must renew the covenant in that sense. And God is faithful. God is the, the faithful administrator of that covenant, um, but it has to be has to be owned um, both corporately and individually. Um, yeah, I think that's right. I think they're they're just you know if there's any lesson that we see in in you know the Old Testament, uh, it's that um, there's this waxing and this waning kind of thing. It's always going on, and there's always a need for renewal. Um, you know, I think we were just talking about this, I think, a couple weeks ago. The last significant renewal that, I, that I, I think we can identify in the United States was in the 1970s. There was a lot of, you know, kind of wildfire and, and, it, and it was mixed and there was some good and there was you know, mixed in with the bad and bad mixed in with the good. But I think it was a genuine thing, like earlier awakenings. It wasn't as extensive. I think the you know the first Great Awakening had a larger impact, and second less so. That one maybe that's the third, maybe the fourth we could call it. Uh, I, but I remember Time Magazine, the year of the evangelical, I think it was 1976, on the cover, because it was such a huge phenomenon. Okay, well, um, so. What, what, you know, this implies, of course, is that not only elders and officers, but I think we all need to be capable of identifying heresy and calling it what it is. That's really what was behind, you know, the early creeds. We want you to memorize this stuff <laughs> so that you have a filter that you can use to identify false teaching. You know, if this is, um, you know, not compatible with what you're hearing, then you know you're dealing with false teaching. Is that like all the rainbow churches? I would say the rainbow churches uh, in many cases are uh, gone beyond the pale. What's a rainbow church? You know. The rainbow flag out. Oh, oh. <laughs> you know that the Protestants have a problem. Here, this is kind of a, a kind of an, a revealing of a problem when we call it Catholic Church, and then there is no, I don't know, like Hilaire Bella made a pretty strong point about the Protestantism is that it it has no, it's not unified. Not a unified body, whereas before the Protestant movement, it was—I mean, there was two 
entities of the Catholic Church, the Ro Roman Catholic Church and the Greek Orthodox. So now we have this issue where, you know, especially like in America, where you've got everyone saying uh, this. Well, I, I'd like to challenge you a little bit. <laughs> uh, the Catholics aren't as unified as they like to make out. I'd love to rub that in their faces every time we have this very conversation. Because I'll tell them about things I know about Catholicism that they don't want people to. You know how it's like, like you've got like, like family conflict you don't want anybody to know about? It's, <laughs> that's right. They pretend. Uh, now, then if you say, okay, well, what, what are you talking about with regard to unity? It's clearly not theology. What do you do with the Mary Knoll sisters and their, you know, their Marxism? Uh, literally, I'm not making it up. What do you do with the Lavender Mafia that actually run the Catholic Church? I'm not making it up. I've got Roman Catholic friends that tell me really ugly stories about what goes on. But my point is that <laughs> but you see, the church but, can say something about that as the church, the church, or the churches can say something about that. Well, when we're talking about an equivoc making uh, institutional a sort of connectedness synonymous with Catholicity. That's where we, but within Catholicism, there are ins actually institutional divisions. Dominicans, Franciscans, you know. So, um, and those guys don't get along very much. They're always arguing with each other. I've seen it. <laughs> so, uh, and, then, and then you got the, re the really weird phenomenon of the most serious Catholics being considered troublemakers. So I've got lots of friends who are super serious Catholics and they're more or less treated like, you know, a cult. <laughs> you know, it's like you almost like you need to be lukewarm to be a good Catholic. It's just weird stuff, you know. Anyway, I'm just telling you things that I'm told. So I, I've not been a Roman Catholic, so I'm just, this is all secondhand information. But I could bring them here. That'd be a lot of fun. I, 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 I could bring in John Zmirak. I called John Zmirak. Uh, uh, he, he, uh, he's kind of a cross between Pope Benedict and Don Rickles. He's just hilarious and one of the most biting wits I've ever, you know, encountered in my life. And, uh, and uh, anyway, I, I don't mean to belabor the point, but with, even with uh, orthodoxy, what are we talking about? Syrian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox? Very strong feelings uh, between those, those different groups about each other. They're not all on the same page. With that happy thought. <laughs> so uh, I like to say this because if you have some kind of illusion that there's some ideal ecclesial body, that you can retreat to. I'm here to tell you that's not the case. So forget it. It's just you go to the Roman Catholic Church and you're still going to be fighting the liberals. Anyway, so getting back to this, <laughs> uh, but the promise is, nevertheless, there shall always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will. So there will be a remnant.
Uh, and sometimes that remnant can be really big. You know, like sometimes we get this idea that it's just us three people in a little room over here and we're not, the you know, whole world's against us. Isn't that pretty optimistic? That there's always a... Isn't that optimistic? What? There will always be a church on the earth. So the next statement, it deals with uh, what has been, has been used as a means by which to preserve unity, and that's a visible leader. And uh, number six says, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ, nor can the Pope of Rome in any case be head thereof. So there's a, there's a sense in which we, we're, what, what we see with Rome is a, uh, well, there are a couple things going. One is a practical thing, then there's a kind of uh, claim. So the practical, the, the practical aim is to uh, create something that's institutionally uh, unified. The problem is, is that that's failed. Uh, the other thing has to do with the claim of the supremacy of the See of Peter. Uh, so the Roman, you know, the, the claim that this was Peter's throne and it's been passed down through, you know, uh, a uh, apostolic succession uh, to this point. The problem with that, of course, is the Eastern Church. That's a, you know, they'll say, hey, we remember the day when uh, the sea in Rome was just another sea. I mean, we go back that far. We can remember the early church. We were there. We, we recognized the authority of that sea, but we didn't think it was supreme. You know, what about Constantinople? <laughs> and so on. So it, history has a way of um, making things much more complicated. What does that phrase mean, the sea of? That would be the seat, basically the seat of the, of the bishop. But see, literally. I'd have to look it up. You know, if you're looking for the definition or the etymology of the word see, get out your Google. <laughs> I don't have it off the top of my head. Okay. It's S-E-E. S-E-E, yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to do a disambulation or however they... <laughs> Um, I have a yeah. question. The writers of this document, if they looked at our church, where would they put us? On the top. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the fact that we're using the document would please them. <laughs> but I, I th activities on Sabbath or like how oh, yeah. well, we that... deal with other people or like, yeah, yeah, there there are some ways in which we would be. Um, I think, out of step with some of their own practices. So uh, when it comes to a, the kind of Sabbatarianism, you know, you're, you're referring to, or when it comes to, you know, even the prospect of being able to say it's possible to be a Christian in the Roman Catholic Church, you know, those are a couple of areas where they would be a little bit, um, I think, uh, ready to, to debate. Um, other thoughts?
Okay, let's go on to chapter 26 then. Continues the theme, but in a different key. So, all saints that are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by his spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, and being united to one another in love, they have communion in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man." Now, you could have a whole book on that. I mean, this is a very dense and rich statement. Um, like, each clause could be a chapter. All the saints united to Christ. I mean, you could do a book just on that. So, united to, to Christ as their head, by his Spirit and by faith, have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Now, it's interesting here that what we have in, these, in, in this paragraph is an affirmation of what I think as American Christians we really place a great deal of stress on, and that's you know, the personal exercise of faith directly you know, with God through Christ, not necessarily mediated through a priest, a human priest or something like that. Uh, so, and that means that, you know, of course, if you're stranded on a desert island, you can still have fellowship with God through Christ. Hopefully, you got your Bible. <laughs> you know, but uh, at the same time, uh, there are other people, and we get to that in a minute. But I want to go to this fellowship with Him in His graces, because this is a very rich statement, and I don't think we put, put much stress on this in, in the American church. Um, Fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. Now, what, what in the world are they getting at? Any thoughts? So, like when Apostle Paul says, you've been raised with Christ, and you say, what? I'm right here. <laughs> I haven't gone to heaven. You know, I don't feel resurrected. Um, but, every, but anyway, you know, Paul says you are. Raised with Christ. You can say, you can interpret that as sort of a moral, you know, sort of resurrection, and that's fine, and I think that's appropriate, and that's right. But I think Paul is talking about something even bigger. So, any, any thoughts? Here's an idea. So, when we're talking about our fellowship with Him in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory, first of all, He came to us to endure those sufferings, right, to endure death, but also to be raised, and it was all with us in mind. In other words, he didn't just like say, I'm just going to do this because I'm looking for some kind of really interesting thing to do. Um, it was a rescue operation. So we were dead in our trespasses and sins, which, and then, and then sort of keeping in mind that when we're talking about the the creation from God's perspective, we're not talking about um, God being sort of like subject to time in the way we are. This is a very important thing to keep, you know, sort of uh, in view. Uh, it's hard for us to appreciate it, to, it's impossible to comprehend it, but 
what, what that means, in effect, is that if God says it, it's done. It's done. It's not, there's not like, well, maybe it'll happen. It's done. Even if it hasn't happened yet in time, it's done. You have been raised in Christ. It's done. It'll be realized as an experience for you sometime in the future, but it's done. So there's that. But I think there's another feature to this, and that is has to do with our ability to, in the Spirit, bring our sufferings to Christ, right? Identify with the sufferings of Christ, right? So when we hear about the, the crucifixion, we think about how that suffering was for our sakes. There's a capacity we have as human beings that God has given us by, you know, the fact that we're created in his image to, to sympathize, not just with, you know, each other, but even with our Savior. This is a part of it, I think. And then when we see, you know, his resurrection, we can glory in that. Uh, there's that old uh, spiritual, were you there when they crucified my Lord? It takes you through this whole thing. So there was a really, you know, and of course that's written by some almost illiterate people, but they get it, you know? They get it. Were you there when they crucified? So they're participating with the whole process. It's like identifying with Christ as he's suffering, identifying with Christ as he's crucified, identifying with Christ as he's raised, glorified. Powerful stuff. Oh yeah, I mean it's it's one of the one of the great great you know spirituals. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a very moving, it's a very moving spiritual. Yeah, Isn't it amazing that the, the church has understood, um, God's people have understood this even before Christ, um, uh, like Job saying, yet in yeah. my flesh, I will, you know, though he destroyed me, yet in my flesh I will see the Lord, or asking the rhetorical question of, if a man dies, will he live again? Right. All the days of my service, I would wait. You, you, know, you will call and I will answer. Uh, you, will, you will long for the work of your hands. Job asked those questions. Abraham, um, as well, like, you know, the promise he's given of, of, of the land, he understands it's more than the physical land, but it does include the land. And the only land he ends up owning yeah. is the land to bury his dead wife. Yeah. Right? And there's, he, he knows there's resurrection. He knows that God's promise will be fulfilled, right? He, he, doesn't, he does not come to possess the land, but he takes hold of the promise. Yeah, I've, I've heard it likened to this. Uh, it's kind of fun. Imagine some guy from Puerto Rico washing up on a raft on Cape Cod and walking around like he owns the place. Yep, it's mine. God promised me all this. You know, he's living on a tent on the beach. <laughs> mine, all mine. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Just no one else has kind of caught on yet. <laughs> yeah, Victor. So this idea of union with Christ, as I've talked to you about this, John Murray's yeah. uh, imputation of Adam's sin as a book, and the operative word there is solidarity. Not nearly, or he calls not nearly, merely representation, yeah. but solidarity. So it's, it's because of this language why I believe in the doctrine of limited atonement. 
I believe in doctrine of limited atonement, not because he elected some to share and some. Not that's true, but I believe in limited atonement because when Jesus Christ died, somehow mystically united to Him, and I don't know time in the eternity, I died. When He rose, somehow mystically in with Jesus, I rose. He ascended. And he seated me in heaven. Yeah, yeah. I think you know when we use the language of. You know, mystic, mystery, there's a connection. Uh, mystery, this is an interesting thing to think about. So the term or the word mystery today means an unsolved puzzle. It's a mystery. So that's why when we think about, you know, a mystery on a, a, you know, as a book or as a film, we think about Sherlock Holmes, you know. Uh, and by the time the book is ended, the mystery is, is gone. It's all cleared up. It's a very modern way of thinking about it. Uh, the word in the Greek, mysterion, means something hidden inside something else. So a mystery is never cleared up in, that, in the sense that, now you, you might say that we have a deeper understanding of it, whatever, but, when we, but the word we translate into, into the Latin sacrament Sacramentum was the Greek word mysterion. So sacraments, so if you're looking for, you know, where uh, do we find a reference to the sacraments in the New Testament? Well, you have to keep in mind it's the word mystery, mysterion. So like when we have uh, the sacraments, there's something going on. There's something real going on. We're going to get into that in a few chapters when we get to the sacraments. But there's something real going on, even though on the surface, you know, it just looks like a bunch of people taking little pieces of bread. Or it just looks like a little baby getting wet, you know. But there's something real going on that's spiritual in character at the same time. Now, trying to understand that, trying to like define it and nail it down, this is what leads to church splits. <laughs> this, is where we, this is where we get into the, the, the big debates about, you know, transubstantiation and stuff like that. But if we can kind of keep it simple, and to say there's something real and spiritual going on here. This is not just a, a you know, a, a sign. It's, it's more than a sign. It's something real going on as we're, you know, participating. And that's the language, you know, that Paul uses, participation. So when we think about um, justification and sanctification, justification is declarative and jur juridical. God says you are forgiven. You have been justified in Christ. It's something that you just have done to you. Boom. Then participating, that's sanctification. You know, you were, you know, working with the Spirit, you know, being led by the Spirit, attending the, upon the means of grace, reading your Bible, you know, fellowshipping with Christians, trying to grow in grace and become more like Christ. Now, your will is being sanctified, so that means your will actually has to be exercised. It's not just a passive thing. You know, I just sanctify me. You know, just sitting there, you're actually working at things. You know, it's because Christ is, you know, it's because, you know, God is working on you that you do the work, you know, that kind of stuff. Um... Let's think about the, the, the sort of the, the other side of this. So this is one of the things I try to bring out each time we observe the Lord's Supper, 
is that our fellowship, our communion is with God through Christ, but it's also with each other, Christ's body. And that's what the second half of this uh, first paragraph addresses. Being united to one another in love, we have communion in each other's gifts and graces. Now, isn't that a marvelous way of putting it? So you have gifts, you have graces that I need to participate in and vice versa. So we need each other and uh, there are things that God has given you that you're supposed to give to everybody else. So we got to receive and give all the time in the church and that's going to help build up the church um, in the faith. Any thoughts on that? I don't know how it could have gone almost 40 years without going to church. I, I agree, know. Molly. Now we're now you're here. Now you're here. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that's resolved. I was terrible. Well, there are certain things we can say have been blotted out. God, you know, even God's forgotten about it. Yeah. You know? But I haven't forgotten about it. Ah, that's the problem. Anyway, we'll talk. Actually, I'm going to be talking about that in my sermon this morning. So hold on. Yeah, pretty. All of our gifts have to be used with other people. So you preach, we listen and talk and answer questions. Some people play piano, we participate by singing along with it. Mm -hmm. yeah. Some people um, cook yep. for big groups of people. I like those people. You eat, you eat and enjoy and appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of things, you know, that. And then, uh, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is how Paul talks about this. Uh, he talks about uh, gifts uh, in such a way that, you know, he refers to the body, you know, different parts of the body, what is the, ha the hand would not say to the eye and that kind of thing. And he says then there are, th there are gifts that are very prominent because they're very sort of on display in a, in a group like this, right? You know, so I'm up here talking. Uh, but the, then Paul says, you know, there are, there are parts of the body which are covered and are treated with special reverence even, but are not visible. But they're very, very, very important. And that kind of thing, like obviously prayer, you know, private prayer. So, um, you know, one of the things that, about, you know, one of the things about being in front of people is it can be a real ego trip. And, you know, we've all seen when people kind of go off the deep end on stuff like that. But, there are other, and that's what I think Jesus is getting at, the Lord's getting at in the Sermon on the Mount, is like, who are you doing this for? Are you doing it for the Lord or are you doing it for yourself? If you're doing it for yourself, you got your reward, what more do you want? <laughs> and if you're doing it for the Lord, well then, don't advertise, just do it. And uh, I think there's something about that that's very precious to God. Um, your willingness to forego. In fact, I, I, I talked a little bit about this. There, there's this remarkable passage in um, 2 Corinthians 10. I think it's 2 Corinthians. Anyway, where Paul is, is addressing the subject of uh, having to work. He's working. And he, and he says, uh, he starts off with saying, you know, a, a workman is worthy of his hire, right? You know, you should, you know, 
you should be able to make your living from the gospel if you, pre if you uh, preach the gospel and so forth. And then he says, I don't want to be paid. And then he actually implies that it's like a, he, he, he want, he's looking for something from God, not from you. So it's almost like these are mutually exclusive. So he's like, I'm, I'm doing this for your charge because I want my reward to come from God, not from you. Remarkable thought. Uh, and sometimes that happens. I've done it once in a while. <laughs> but you, you get what I'm getting at. Uh, there, are, there are things that um, are like that in the in work of the ministry. Um, prayer, I think, is supremely an example of that. So I've had a marvelously fruitful prayer life. If, if, if B.F. Skinner and the behaviorists were right, I would just do nothing but pray because I've had lots of positive reinforcement with prayer. But I'm just too lazy, too thoughtless. You know, it really takes a lot of, you know, it takes a lot to get my attention and get me praying. I don't know if anybody else can identify with that. But um, my prayers have been answered very, very many times. So I, I was just talking about this yesterday with somebody. I remember when, when my kids were small, we, had, we gave a dog to each of the kids. So each kid had a dog. And all the kids in the room saying, oh, I want a dog too. But, I, but my oldest son had a little Jack Russell, and that, that dog got very, very sick. I mean, it was just dying. And it, this went on for a couple of weeks. And I, I said to Caleb, I said, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to put Roxy down. And he just, he was just, you know, unable. It was just, just tough for him to accept. And he was very upset. So I said, okay, okay, okay. We'll pray one last time for the dog. And wouldn't you know it, it's like next day, the dog is better. <laughs> I was like, I was like, okay. <laughs> but I think that had a profound influence on, on my son and his you know, belief that God cares and God answers prayer, stuff like that. But for me, it was like I was exasperated. I was like, all right, you crying kid. Okay. <laughs> I was about ready to go out and shoot the dog. <laughs> we won't do that. All right, we're going to pray. Then the dog's better. Lasted, I think, another seven years or so. <laughs> It's amazing what, what God teaches every single day. I mean, yeah. I haven't gone to church in almost four years. And, I and now you're here. And, and <laughs> well, he knew what I needed. Yes, he does. He knows what we all need. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. This is an, an English question. The word graces in this, yeah. in this paragraph. What does it mean? <laughs> yeah, I think that uh, when we're talking about God's grace, you know, we're talking about one thing. When I think about graces in this sense, these are gifts from God, kind of charismata, you could say, gifts from God that uh, have an expression through just how we conduct our lives and how we re relate to other people and the things we do for them. Um, so. You know, the graces would be like praying for each other or encouraging each other or visiting the sick, things of that. So those would be the graces. So not so much dec declarative, like you are now forgiven, 
that's a demonstration it of death. It says gifts and graces, and so it seems redundant yeah. to say so. Yeah, well, I, that's, may, maybe, maybe, you're, maybe it is. That would be an interesting thing to go, go into the room and they were debate, because they like debated every single word. <laughs> so, I've been trying to puzzle that together. Yeah. In the, the sequence for Jesus, it's graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, glory. There's a chronological yeah. sense to it. Graces just seems like his bodily presence. That's, that's a good, I think that's, I think that's sound, yeah. But I, I think that, you know, w when we think of the graces, we'd also include things like his healing ministry, you know, his teaching, um, those things. So I, I think that would be inclusive of those things too, but certainly starting with that. Yeah, just the verb to, to, to grace us with the only thing that you can say after that is your presence, right? Like, yeah. But the, the presence would mean, you know, yes, but also the activity that would come with that, yeah. Other thoughts? Well, anyway, uh, next Sunday I won't be here, so uh, Pastor uh, Nolder will be teaching, and I'm not sure what he's going to talk about yet, so I can't tell you. But I'll be back the following week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for, uh, again, this time. We pray today, Lord, that you'll help us to worship uh, you in spirit and in truth. And we pray, too, that you'll help us to be gracious and giving and uh, keep the needs of others in mind as we uh, fellowship even this morning. In Christ's name, amen.